Well, folks, we're going to continue our、uh, trek through Israel. The series is called Life Lessons from the Holy Land. We've been making stops at various places、uh, in the Holy Land so as to derive at least one practical life principle by which we could live. And today, I'd like for us to journey to a place called Caesarea Philippi. You've heard about it if you're a Bible person. Caesarea Philippi. Tell you a little bit about it. It's quite a beautiful area in the northern part of Israel, lush because there's so much rainfall and water. It's at the foot, at the base of Mount Hermon, which is a very high mountain. In fact, it, in some、uh, cases, when you're in Israel, you can see snow on top of it.、Uh, people actually ski Mount Hermon, believe it or not. And so when the snow、uh, melts, the waters come down and it becomes one of the four sources for the Jordan River. So it's a very, very lush, beautiful kind of an area. Just to give you a mooring point,、uh, it's located about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And during one of our prior Uh, lessons. We looked at the Sea of Galilee, and it's located about 45 miles、um, southwest of a place called Damascus, the capital of Syria, just to give you an idea.、Uh, it was a place uh,、um, occupied by a group of people called the Canaanites, and you've heard about them. And they worshipped、uh, false gods, generally known as Baals or Baals, Canaanite、uh, worship of the Baals focused and centered itself here at this place called Caesarea Philippi. Later, however, under Greek and Roman influence, the Baals were replaced、uh, with the worship of the Greek god Pan. Pan. Uh, was worshipped here at Caesarea Philippi. In fact, the place was then known as Panaeus,、uh, in order to commemorate the fact that it was the center of the worship of this god Pan. Later on, it came to be called Banias、uh, by the Arab people, who primarily populate the area today. So, from Panaeus, it became Banias, stemming from the worship of. Pan in that place.、Uh, there's quite an interesting feature there. It's the mouth of a cave, quite large, and there's an active spring of water that emanates from it. People visit it today. Many more in ancient days.、Uh, ancient pagan people believed that、uh, out of this cave and the spring water. Uh, was a gate, literally a gate to the underworld. So when the Lord Jesus said, with regard to、uh, one's confession of faith in Him, that not even the gates of hell will prevail against it, do you know He made that statement right at this spot? And this was literally known as the gates of hell, because the ancient Canaanites believed that their gods during the winter went through the gates of hell underground into the dark underworld, only to emerge on earth to do whatever it is they would do during springtime. So this grotto. 
uh, was a place where it was thought many, many deities made their abode. Again, under Greek influence, the primary deity who was worshipped there at this grotto was Pan. In fact, to the right of it, in this massive rock outcropping, uh, are many niches carved uh, by human hands into the rock. And in ancient days, they contained statues of various Greek gods, uh, images of Pan, and other uh, false deities at this place. Pan is depicted in pictures and statuary, perhaps you've seen him, as half man and half goat. I'm taking time to speak to you about Pan here at this Baptist church uh, because the Lord went to this place, immersed in all of this. And so for a little while, though it's a tad bit distasteful, uh, let's be immersed in it. Uh, we need to get a feel for what was going on there when the Lord went there. Soon we'll focus our attention on him. For now, let's depart just for a second. Let me tell you a little bit about the God who was worshipped there, this half-man, half-goat uh, pan. Uh, he was the Greek god of forests and agriculture and uh, pastures and shepherds, all of the above. And he's often depicted with a musical instrument which has come to be known as the pan flute. And perhaps some of you have seen one such thing and even played it. It's made up of a collection of hollow reeds which are uh, joined together so that they are attached side to side and cut to different lengths. And so Pan came to be so identified with this instrument that it's now known even today as the Pan flute. And here's how he came to be associated with it. A little Greek mythology, if you please. Uh, there was someone called Syrinx. She was a nymph. A nymph is a female spirit. A Syrinx was good-looking, apparently, and uh, Pan took a shine to her. And he was in hot pursuit of her, but she did not share his interest in the relationship, apparently. And so she was trying to run from him so as to elude his grasp. Uh, she didn't succeed, however. He was in hot pursuit. She needed some outside help in order to get away, and she found it uh, in the company of her sisters, who apparently had the power to turn her into a reed, and so they did. Uh, well, when the air blew through these reeds, tall grasses, you know, they made kind of a sad melody. Pan believed one of those reeds, of course, was siring who he was interested in. But he didn't know which particular reed was her, so he cut down many pretty much at random, again, not being able to precisely identify which of the reeds was his beloved. And so he cut them up in different sizes, joined them together, uh, made them uh, cut in decreasing lengths, and formed uh, then the musical instrument, which we have today, which is called the pan flute. And now you know. So you see, it's good to come to church, don't you think? Um, have you heard of the word panic? Yeah, 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 panic. Where do you think we got the name? It comes from the Greek word meaning pertaining to pan. So now you know. Why? Well, it was thought that pan was the source of a rather mysterious sound 
which only he could make and which conjured up fear in the lives of people and animals who heard this sound. They became affected by Pan. They became, they became panic, uh, uh, aff affected by the panic of it all. And so that's what it means pertaining to Pan. Well, um, Herod the Great came on the scene, and we spoke of him. And he came on the scene uh, long after some of this, which I'm speaking to you about. And he built at this very place a magnificent palace, the ruins of which are still there. And he did it in uh, honor of uh, the Roman Emperor Augustus Caesar, who gave Herod the Great the right to this area, uh, and he did so, Pantheus, uh, Augustus gave it to Herod the Great in 20 B.C. Herod the Great died in 4 B.C. And then all that he was in possession of was divided amongst his uh, rather evil sons. And one in particular was Herod uh, Philip the son of Herod the Great. And Herod, Herod Philip uh, received possession of this area, Pontius, but changed its name to Caesarea Philippi. Why? Well, Caesarea, after Caesar Augustus, and, meek and humble man that he is, Philippi, after himself, Philip. And he did this so as to distinguish his Caesarea from his father's Caesarea, which was on the Mediterranean coast and which we visited some weeks ago. So since then, it's come to be known in Bible times as Caesarea Philippi. Now, Matthew chapter 16 tells us that the Lord was here. And that's why we're taking such time to focus on it. He went there. In fact, it probably was the furthest, most northern extent of his recorded travels. And Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, tells us why he went there. So I want to invite you to turn there if you want to follow along. Just a few verses. Matthew 16, beginning in 13. I wondered why the Lord and his followers, remember most were Galilean fishermen, why would they go so far north? Well, it occurred to me this is a possible answer. While you're turning there, I'll just throw it out. And if you don't like it, you could throw it away. Um, they were all Jews, the Lord and his humanity, and his followers were all Jews. And so they received tremendous persecution from the Jewish religious establishment. This rabbi Jesus wasn't one of them. He didn't go to their schools. He didn't operate with their authority. And so they wanted to do him in and along with him, those who followed him. And so the Lord had some business to conduct with his followers here at this particular time. And I think he probably went with them here to Caesarea Philippi because it was primarily Gentile, not Jewish. It was occupied, inhabited primarily by Gentiles and not by Jews. And therefore, the Lord would have had freedom with which to teach uh, without distraction, no obstruction, those who were his followers. So I think that's one of the reasons he went here. Okay, here we go. Verse 13, Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came, here it is, into the district of Caesarea Philippi. So now you have a somewhat better idea of what we're talking about. He began asking his disciples, saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
Jesus came here to this place with his disciples. And he asked them who people said he was. He had been teaching them for some time now. And at this point, it's final exam time. He's been with them. They've seen his deeds, his works, and have heard his words. And now he tests them out to see if they know for sure who his identity is. You see, who they, who we, who you, who I say Jesus is, is very crucial. In fact, it's my opinion that if you get this right, you're probably going to be right about everything else that matters. If you're right about who Jesus is, you're probably going to be right about everything else. It's very critical. So they asked them, who do people say I am? And they said, verse 14, well, some say John the Baptist. Some, on the other hand, Elijah, others, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. That's good. That's good. Their report indicates that this Jesus had a rather favorable rating in the polls. The people who were polled really attached some very positive qualities to this Jesus. They saw him to be perhaps another in the long line of those very special human representatives of transcendent deity. Oh, yes, this Jesus, he's another prophet. Well, that sounded pretty good, I suppose, but it isn't good at all. You see, most of the people in that day and perhaps today were really missing the point because this Jesus was far more than just another one in the long line of God's human messengers. They saw him to be an extraordinary human indeed, but not divine. And so they had a very distorted notion of who he was. He was more than an ordinary man, they would say, but less than God himself. Folks, that's wrong. That's wrong. And so the Lord, verse 15, changes the direction of his question. Look, he said to them, but who do you say I am? Whoa. Now it's not some generic a non-threatening population survey. Now it's brought home. It has to be brought home. This is a deeply personal issue. Everyone has to answer this question for himself or herself. Forget about everyone else. Who do you say that I am? That's what he, he gets. Downright, up close, and personal. Who you, who I personally say Jesus is, is so crucial. Uh, the Lord made a point of making this the final exam question. And it's so crucial, I want, even at the risk of giving offense, to do a very brief survey of what some major popular religious groups have offered in answer to the question, who Jesus is. Now, to save yourself some lots of email time, um, and me, aggravation. I'm not going to tell you anything that these groups themselves wouldn't say. I'm not going to editorialize it. I'm not going to criticize it. I'm just going to tell you what I have extracted from the publications and uh, other material offered publicly in the public domain by these religious groupings with regard to who Jesus is. And I'm just going to share that with you. So, for instance, one religious group says, with regard to the question, who is Jesus?, he was God's firstborn, a good man, and he accomplished great things, but he is not God. 
Well, folks, this is who Mormon people believe Jesus Christ is. He is a God, but not fully God. In fact, he is a created being. This is who Jehovah's Witnesses say Jesus is. He is a man just like we are. No better, no worse. This is who the Unification Church, you know, Reverend Moon, uh, that's who they say Jesus is. God always was, but the existence of Jesus began at conception. Therefore, he is not God. Uh, this is who the way international say Jesus is. He is a prophet and a messenger of God, but he is not God. This is who Muslim people say Jesus is. He is a great teacher of morality. This is who the Unitarian Church say he is. He is a mystic medium, a guide to self-actualization. This is who New Age thinkers say he is. Well, we've just reviewed a whole lot of religion in an economy of words. And uh, though distasteful it may be, uh, the Lord Jesus brought his followers in this text, we're told, to a place where they too were immersed in a whole lot of religion at Caesarea Philippi. And the Lord Jesus did it deliberately. He brought his disciples deliberately to this place of intense, eclectic conglomeration of a manifold of points of view about God and eternity and life and death and salvation and all the rest. He did it on purpose so as to juxtapose himself with it all. Am I one in the crowd? Am I like all the others? Or am I categorically different? Is he or is he not? This is the question he put. To, it's the question we must answer. And so he, he deliberately, the Lord deliberately, just as I've just done, set himself against the background of, in his case, Canaanite religion and against the background of Jewish religion, and against the background of Greek and Roman religion. And in the center of diverse religion, this Jesus asked this very potent question of his closest disciples. You see all these religious perspectives. You see temples and grottos and statues. You see the worship of all manner of deities. But who do you say that I am? That's the question which must be satisfactorily answered. Who do you, who, who do you say Jesus is? You have got to get this right. I'll tell you why. You, you, you can't afford to get this wrong. If he is who he said he is, and you deny it, you are condemned eternally as an unbeliever. This is serious business. So let me simplify the process for you. There are only a few, very few options with reference to who Jesus is. I want to encourage you tonight to choose one. Make a choice. Stop playing around. I hope you make the right choice. Good luck. Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic 
or Lord of all. You're not left with any other choices. But someone is saying, oh, you left, you missed one, Stuart. He's none of the above. He's a good man. No, no, no. You see, that option is not available to you if you're a thinking person, and I'll tell you why. He could not possibly be a good man. How could one claiming, as he did, to be God, and who is not God, be considered by any stretch of the imagination to be a good man? He's a liar. So if he claimed to be God, knowing he is not God, you cannot uh, choose the option that he's a good man. No, you have to say he's a liar. But what if he claimed to be God but didn't know he was not God? That would make him not a liar but a lunatic. So that's another choice available to you. He's either a liar or he is a lunatic or he is Lord. Who do you say he is? Yeah, me too. Lord of lords. And I do that as you do for a lot of reason. He vindicated his claims by doing something which is not capable of being duplicated by any pretender to the throne. He rose up from death. <clears throat> If you deny he is Lord, do you do so because you have more evidence that he is either a liar or a lunatic than that he is Lord? Submit your evidence, please, to me. I want to see it. If you reject him as Lord, do you do so because you think there's an evidentiary basis, a greater evidentiary basis for him to be liar or lunatic? If so, make your case. I want to see the evidence and then let me make mine to you privately. But stop playing games. He's good. He's a moral teacher. He is good. And he surely is moral. But he's divine. He's incarnate deity. He's God. He has no beginning nor any end. He's perfectly holy. In fact, he's perfect in all of his perfections. He's not one in a long line of God's messengers. He's God who took on this to relate to us and to suffer and die in our place. I got evidence for it. What's yours? Contrary to it. Let's talk. Show me your evidence. Or else tonight acknowledge, I don't have a case against Jesus. I choose to recognize him as Lord. So listen, listen, listen. Verse 16. Simon Peter answered the question, naturally. The Lord said, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, of course, it's his character, and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. You, not Pan, not Baal, um, not Caesar, you and you alone, said Peter. You are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. You're the high priest. You're the eternal king. Peter said that. Peter, the one-time Orthodox Jew. Peter made that confession in this place, inundated in this atmosphere of demonic darkness. Peter was able to recognize who the Lord Jesus was 
How could he make such confession in such a dark place? Verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, it's Peter, Simon Barjonas. Why? Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. He didn't read it in a book. He didn't have a good teacher. No, no. No, no, no. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My Father who is in heaven. Wait just a second. The Lord said to Peter, based upon his recognition of who he is, Blessed are you, Peter, because the Father, he's the one who enabled you to see. He's the one who opened your eyes so that you could have a clear view of who I, I am. Peter is blessed. Do you mind me taking just a minute or two to tell you I'm blessed? Listen, listen, listen. On September 5th, 1973, I too recognized who Jesus was. It was like like blinders. Boom! (gasps) He's the Savior. No, He's my Savior. (gasps) He's my deliverer from sin. He's he's the long-awaited Messiah. He's... He's the one we crucified. He's the one I denied. He's the one I'm inviting into my heart today. September 5th, 1970. What happened? How did I get saved? One time I told some people, I think here, I don't know how I got saved, and I got all kinds of emails. You're a minister? You don't know how you got saved? <laughs> I, I, I wasn't clear. I, I, I know the plan by which God saves. But what I meant is, I don't know how at that moment everything was clear. Look, look. I'm an American. I grew up here. What do you think? I never saw a cross before. I never went by a church. You think I never saw Billy Graham on TV? You think I never held a Bible in my hand? I read bits and pieces of the Bible. Hello, this is America. Yeah, 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 yeah. You think I never met a Christian? You think I never heard the term Christian? You think I never heard the phrase born again? You think I had no notion of heaven or hell? You think I never heard the name Jesus Christ? What? Yes, yes, yes. Water off a duck's back. Until that moment on September 5th, 1973. Flesh and blood didn't reveal it to me. Oh, don't misunderstand. Don't misunderstand. Someone in the barracks shared the good news with me a few days before. Please don't misunderstand. Of course, God uses human agency. But I could just as easily have dismissed it as I had done. Up, to these, uh, up until this point. I could have just said, I'm a Jew. He's for you, not for me. I could have done all, I could have been, what's the guy's name? Abdul. I, I could have ripped up the body. I could have, why on this particular moment did truth and enablement to believe in it come together so radically that I was saved? ushered into the kingdom of God. Never looked back, never had a doubt. And since that happened, September 5th, 1973, I don't know how many years ago it is. I can't do the math. It's a a long time. I want to tell you something. I've been blessed. How? How? The Father revealed the Son to me so that I could see Him for who He is and be transformed and be redeemed. I know that leads to a lot of questions. Why me and not others? Ah, we can argue about this some other time. But I don't want to lose the fact that if you have seen Jesus as your Savior, you have seen Jesus as your Savior because you've been blessed by the Father to see Jesus as your Savior. He saved you. You're blessed. 
physical ailments notwithstanding, uh, economic downturn notwithstanding, losses of various kinds notwithstanding. If you see Jesus to be not liar, not lunatic, but Lord, your Lord, your blast, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. You didn't just casually waltz into the atmosphere of salvation. The Father of the Savior clearly revealed to you who he is. And at that moment, it's miracle. Your human nature, your preconceptions, your prejudices, your misunderstanding, your religion, your foolish lenses, boom, they were gone. And you made the same confession Peter did. <gasps> you are the Christ, the Son of God, the Anointed One. You are the High Priest. You are the Eternal King. So this leads me to this life lesson from Caesarea. Philippi, which I've taken for myself and offer it to you. The Lord's Father revealed him to me to revere him. He revealed him to revere him. I'm almost done. <laughs> you know what's beautiful about little kids? They're really doing out loud what we're thinking inside. <laughs> I know you're dying, you're crying. When's this guy going to stop? Okay, I, I got the message. In just a second. <laughs> he revealed him so that we might revere him. Are you looking for your life's purpose? Oh, if you're a Christian, and if the Father has revealed the Son, your job is to revere the Son. It means to worship him. It means to adore him. It means to respect him. Are you revering him in your recreational pursuits? Are you revering him in the television shows you choose to watch? Are you revering him in the way you handle your finances? Are you revealing him in the manner in which you dress? Are you revealing, uh, revering him with regard to what you eat, to what you drink? Are you revering him with regard to ha how you handle the, today's technology, computer and all this stuff on it and so on? Are you revering him in your neighborhood? Are you revering him here in church? You know you don't have to. Because if he's been revealed to you as Savior and you've taken him as Savior, he's your Savior just as you are. He took you warts and all. It's not a have to, it's a want to. Do you mean to tell me, transcendent deity, almighty God, the Alpha and Omega who has no beginning or any end, who spoke the world into existence in the power of his word. Do you mean to tell me he singled me out of the crowd and said, boom, be blessed and see my son? And I'm not going to do anything about it? I would explode, so would you, if we had no means by which to say, thank you, God. How do we thank? We revere him. We worship him. He's not my co-pilot. He's not the big guy upstairs. He's not my equal. He's categorically different. He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And I'm blessed to know that. If you know it, you're blessed. If you don't know it, why not be blessed? Why not be blessed? You know who he is. Stop denying him. Why not saying, I'll deny you no longer? King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior of Peter, Savior of Stuart, be my Savior tonight. Bless me.
if the Father is revealing to you your need for the Savior, and if the Father is revealing to you that Jesus is the Savior, welcome him into your life. And then be welcomed into his heaven when your time comes. And we'll go with you. I sure would love to talk to you if something is stirring in your personal life tonight. Who do you say Jesus is? Do you have an answer? I'd like to talk to you. Do you have questions about it? I'd like to talk to you. Do you have an argument? I'd like to talk to you. Let's talk. This is important. If you're wrong about who Jesus is, you're wrong about everything. If you're right about who Jesus is, you will come to be in right relationship with his Father. And you'll be with his Father forevermore. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, for saving our soul. Thank you, Lord, for making us whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to us like great salvation, so rich and free. Thank you, though we be spiritually dead at one point and blind as could be. You opened our eyes. You gave us new life. You quickened us with your spirit so that we could see who you are, high and lifted up the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, not a, the, not a messenger, but God enfleshed, Savior of all who call upon your name. May there be some even tonight who do that very thing. As for the rest of us, we are blessed. And we're blessed with riches which cannot be forfeited by inflation or thievery or the aging process. Oh, no. Nobody can rob of us, us of our salvation. We are in your hand. We are in the Father's hand. We are, we're a blessed people. We Christians are the most blessed people on earth. We have seen you clearly revealed to us and therefore... We want to be even more intent in these challenging days to reverence you, to revere you more than ever before. In other words, Lord, you know our heart is to be living proof of you, a loving God, to a watching world. Help us to do better at it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.